1: Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about U.S. policy in Afghanistan and more broadly, the Taliban's foreign relations after the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri, the al-Qaeda leader in the Afghan capital, Kabul. On Saturday, at my direction, the United States successfully concluded an airstrike in Kabul, Afghanistan, that killed the emir of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Now justice has been delivered, and this terrorist leader is no more. People around the world no longer need to fear the vicious and determined killer." That was U.S. President Joe Biden announcing Zawahiri's killing via a U.S. drone strike at the end of July. The house the al-Qaeda leader had been staying in was reportedly maintained by the family of Sirajuddin Haqqani, the powerful Taliban Interior Minister. Zawahiri's killing came almost a year after U.S. troops pulled out of Afghanistan, and the Taliban routed the former Afghan security forces and seized power. So what does Zawahiri's presence in Kabul and his death mean for US policy in Afghanistan? Has it changed? Will it change the Taliban's relations with the outside world? And what does it say about the potential threats posed by foreign militants sheltering in Afghanistan and the future of efforts by the US and by Afghanistan's neighbors to curb those threats? So I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast uh, Laurel Miller, Crisis Group's Asia director, who was formerly Acting and Deputy U.S. Special Representative to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Few people know more about U.S. policy, the evolution of U.S. policy in the region. Laurel, welcome back on.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So maybe then let's start with Zawahiri's killing. On the one hand, the al-Qaeda leader was in Kabul shortly after the U.S. pulls out, hosted, it seems, by the Taliban. That hardly bodes well for the Taliban's relations with the outside world and their reassurances about counterterrorism. On the other hand, clearly the U.S. had enough intelligence to carry out the operation. Plus, of course, we don't really know what Zawahiri was doing in Kabul. I mean, was the Taliban giving him space to operate or were they actually trying to keep an eye on him so he didn't get up to any transnational mischief? What sort of impact has the killing had on the debate in Washington about Afghanistan policy?
0: You know, first of all, I think it's notable that although at the time of the killing, there was a flurry of news reports and there was a renewed focus on Afghanistan and the potential terrorism risks emanating from Afghanistan. That faded pretty quickly, considering that what the U.S. did was kill one of its highest-profile terrorism targets in the world—someone they had been searching for for 20 years, former number two to Osama bin Laden and now number one person and, uh, in in Al Qaeda—and you know had expended an enormous. Uh, amount of resources looking for and trying to to kill this man for many many years and so i think it's rather notable how how much this was a sort of a blip of attention focused on the issue uh as opposed to uh, something that has been uh, regarded as a really you know major event that has somehow turned the trajectory of attention to terrorism issues or attention to Afghanistan. And I think what this shows is just how much times have changed, how little counterterrorism is a focus of attention on the part of the United States in particular, and how little Afghanistan really registers.
1: And what about the impact Zawahiri's killing has had on the way the U.S now sees its counterterrorism policy and its sort of ability to take action against groups, against individuals it regards as a threat?
0: I think it doesn't tell us very much about the capabilities of the United States to execute counterterrorism strikes on any kind of persistent basis or even the intentions of the United States to do that because Zawahiri was the number one target. I mean, if there was one target for which you were going to go all out in trying to gain actionable intelligence, use your resources, break some eggs in terms of maybe violating airspace of, of neighbors in order to send a drone in and, and also risk, um, you know, creating a, a further breach with those who are now in charge in Afghanistan. You know, he was the one you were going to do that for. And so it shows that when you have a number one terrorism target, you're going to go all out and 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 apply all those tools and and resources and take all those risks to get him. But it doesn't tell us that the U.S. is going to go after lower profile or less significant targets or expend anything like those kind of resources to engage in counterterrorism from so-called over the horizon. So I don't think it tells us very much about U.S. counterterrorism policy. It also doesn't tell us a whole lot about the Taliban. I mean, we already knew that uh, Zawahiri was probably somewhere in Afghanistan. That's what most uh, counterterrorism experts thought. We already knew that the Taliban had um, cozy relationships with al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups. So, you know, it it was a bit... um, shocking in a way to see that he was being harbored right there in downtown Kabul. But the fact that he was being harbored wasn't a particular shock. And indeed, you know, uh, part of the reason it's not a shock is because the Taliban never said they would go after Al Qaeda or other terrorist groups and, you know, resisted U.S. pressure to make promises like that during the U.S. Taliban negotiations. I would also just add, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about Al Qaeda that wasn't known before either. I mean, this was not a surprising event in that sense. And, and it hasn't greatly disrupted what the U.S. was already doing in terms of its uh, you know, quasi-engagement with the Taliban. I think we'll, we'll get into that later, um, though it's an awkward fact in the background now.
1: And just to remind people what the Taliban agreed to in the Doha agreement with the US was, as you say, not that they would eradicate al-Qaeda or go after al-Qaeda or other foreign militants, it was that they would not permit them to use Afghanistan as a staging post for attacks abroad, right? I mean, that was the that was the Doha deal. I mean, Laurel, the other the other thing that's sort of interesting about the killing is that it seems to it doesn't seem to have changed anybody's mind. People who thought that leaving was a bad idea and that Afghanistan would become a worse haven for terrorists, the fact that he was there has confirmed that. And people who thought it was a good idea to leave and that actually you didn't need a presence in Afghanistan to be able to conduct strikes like this, that you could do it, as you say, over the horizon. That's also been reinforced by the idea that in actual fact, something that the U.S. has been trying to do for a long time, kills Zawahiri, they were able to do. So it's sort of retrenched the same positions in the debate about the U.S. pullout and its, its impact on U.S. counterterrorism. It's sort of entrenched those positions rather than changing anything.
0: That's exactly right. And I think that is further um, indication of what I said, that it wasn't really a new fact. You know, if it was a new fact that really changed our understanding of the Taliban, of U.S. counterterrorism capabilities, then, you know, perhaps people who were inclined to have an open mind about these questions might you know reconsider their views. But it wasn't really a new fact. And you're exactly right. I mean, it was uh, it's a fact that can be touted by people on either side of that debate.
1: And what do you make now of the way that the, as you say, that this Afghanistan seems to have completely slipped off the radar. The administration doesn't want to be talking about Afghanistan, clearly focused on, on the Ukraine war and, more broadly speaking, on China. And as you say, the sort of battle against Islamist militancy has gone from sort of ordering principle of US foreign policy to almost an afterthought. But there is clearly thinking in the US about how to deal with, the threat of transnational Islamist militancy coming from Afghanistan. Where do you see that thinking now? I mean, in terms of how it relates to what an over-the-horizon capacity is going to look like. I mean, what does that mean for relations with neighboring governments? What does it mean for cooperation with the Taliban?
0: I don't want to suggest that there's no one paying attention at all to these issues in Washington, but it is very low on the scale of things that U.S. leadership is paying attention to. And as I said, like a dramatic shift in the resources of people and other kinds of resources that are applied to this. You know, if you step back and look at it, it's a remarkably dramatic swing from a period of two decades when U.S. institutions, bureaucratic structures, what the U.S. was devoting resources and time and attention to all ordered around counterterrorism over the last 20 years. You know, major restructuring of American government institutions around this problem. And it has swung so far and so quickly um, away from that to predominantly reordering around the so-called China challenge. And it's... Um, I think for some people in Washington who have a lot of experience with this issue and who, and in particular who are outside government looking at this feel that it's perhaps the pendulum has swung too far too fast. How can it be that this was the primary challenge for most of two decades and now it's just a, a blip on the radar of the policy screen? Like that's, that's a little unnerving to see that Um, that, you know, so little attention is being paid to it when there are still terrorist groups in the region, when there are implications for the countries in the region of instability in Afghanistan. But, you know, that doesn't mean that we should have stayed there. That doesn't mean that the U.S. US should be doing anything like it was doing in the last 20 years. But um, it does become easy, especially given the unsatisfying end to the war to, uh, American policymakers. It does become easy to slide this all under the rug without thinking about what are the problems that still remain. There's a lot of fatigue about Afghanistan and, and Pakistan too in Washington. And sometimes those even personal and <laughs> emotional reactions for people who've been involved in it for a long time can actually have policy implications.
1: And Laurel, broadly speaking, I mean, there's some debate maybe about how important Zawahiri was as a target. I mean, obviously, symbolically, hugely important as leader of Al Qaeda, but some debate maybe as to how important he was to the movement itself, to its sort of fortunes.
0: Regarding Zawahiri himself and how significant a figure he was or not and the Al Qaeda threat, you know, there are differences of views on that among people who have spent, you know, more time studying Al Qaeda than I have. Some saw him as not a particularly significant figure individually anymore, um, not a particularly charismatic figure. Assuming that that actually matters, um, but given that. You know, a lot of what Al Qaeda does is sort of having an inspirational effect on jihadists. Uh, some considered that relevant and others considered him still quite relevant. And the Al Qaeda threat is one that could potentially grow. I think we'll we'll see some evidence of that over time uh, as now people who examine these questions can see, well, what is the effect of his absence on Al Qaeda, who is replacing him, what are they now capable of doing or not. So I think it's the kind of thing that that, you know, evidence will emerge to support one of those views or the other over time. I mean, I guess the only other thing I would say is my own view is that, you know, no one should be too confident of any of their judgments on questions about groups about who so little is known. I mean, groups that are intentionally opaque and secretive. Caution is warranted in analysis of this.
1: Maybe in some ways, it sort of depends on what your metric for measuring his success is. If you're talking about getting a whole bunch of local groups to keep fighting in al-Qaeda's name, and for the most part, he's done that. I mean, no big al-Qaeda affiliate jump ship to ISIS at the peak of sort of ISIS's powers. I mean, the affiliate in Syria, what was Jabhat al-Nusra, now Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, arguably the most important al-Qaeda affiliate at the time. I mean, it abandoned al-Qaeda, so that was a big loss. And I guess you know, there's sort of questions now about how tight the bonds between al-Qaeda without Zawahiri are and, and these other local groups that fight in al-Qaeda's name. But for the most part, sort of Zawahiri held that ship together. But if you're talking about mounting attacks on the West, pursuing al-Qaeda's far enemy strategy, which Zawahiri apparently did always encourage local groups to do, then, you know, Al-Qaeda hasn't managed to do that for years in some ways. Plus, there doesn't appear to have been a succession plan. I mean, if there had been, you would have thought that a new leader would be announced. There would have been some benefit to Al-Qaeda to doing that. So I guess sort of more broadly, your view of his success as a leader depends a bit on the metrics you're using. Uh, keeping the brand alive, yes. Keeping most of the affiliates on board, yes. Hitting the West, no. And certainly not, it seems. But obviously, it's still early days, but it seems not having a sort of secession plan for a handover.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's right. You know, what we've seen is that all that aside, you know, they, it has endured at least as a name brand, if, if nothing else, and it has adapted over time to the pressures on it. So, you know, the question is, what happens in the future? Is it able to adapt further in a way that enables the, you know, at least the name brand, if not operational capability to endure in a way that, you know, maybe isn't the predominant threat that it was in the past, at least as perceived, but something's still there to pay at least some attention to.
1: So there's the the Al-Qaeda threat, but then there's also the big ISIS branch in Afghanistan. And mostly, again, fighting locally, but reportedly, you know, a good few thousand people now fighting as part of ISIS, sworn enemy of the Taliban. The Taliban's probably biggest internal security challenge. And in some ways, the Taliban is the logical partner against ISIS for the US. Indeed, even before the Doha agreement, even before the Taliban takeover, there was some tacit cooperation between the Taliban and the US fighting ISIS. Is that sort of continuing? I mean, or is that now out of the question because of so who is killing? Because the way the Taliban have behaved since coming to power.
0: So you know, what are the prospects for the U.S. and the Taliban to actually cooperate against this common enemy, ISIS? You know, it is not out of the question to me that there could be. I think cooperation is probably too strong a word, but that that there could be some coordination or at some stage, sharing of information, tacit cooperation against the ISIS threat. It's, of course, very difficult to be certain about what exactly is going on and what kinds of conversations may or may not happen, because these things are intentionally um, opaque. But I doubt that there is very much that's happening now in terms of tacit cooperation or coordination, or that it's likely to become uh, terribly robust um, in the near future, even apart from the Zawahiri episode. Uh, because you know, it's important to remember that the mistrust between the US and the Taliban is entirely mutual. And that's not a good foundation for even tacit cooperation. You also have a Taliban that is intent on demonstrating, its own ability to be independent and sovereign and take care of its problems itself. And I think that doesn't incline them towards tacit cooperation, even with the United States. Uh, on top of that, I would say you, you have a United States that's not inclined to devote a lot of resources to this problem. I don't think that the ISIS branch threat in Afghanistan, Pakistan area is seen as more than something to keep an eye on for the United States now. Uh, the, you know, in, in the last years since that threat emerged, that group emerged in Afghanistan around 2015, the U.S. reasons for paying attention to it were first American personnel there in Afghanistan who could be targets of the threat. And second, because the United States was backing the government there and this was a threat to the government. Those reasons are now evaporated. And, uh, and although the U.S. may be attuned to the risks for Afghan stability, for, uh, for Pakistan, for Central Asia, if this threat really metastasizes, I don't think it's something that the U.S. would really put a lot of energy into in the near term.
1: Let's talk then a little bit about the regional threat, because as you say, irrespective of how much uh, threat Al-Qaeda or ISIS pose further afield, clearly some of the foreign militants in Afghanistan pose a threat to neighbours, to countries in the region. And in some ways, the country that did the most to get the Taliban back into power in Afghanistan is sort of arguably feeling the worst blowback from, from that actually happening. And that's, of course, Pakistan. Relations fraying, it seems, between Islamabad and the new authorities in Kabul for many reasons, including this long-running border dispute. But the principal one is that the Pakistani Taliban, the TTP, much of which, including the leadership, appears to be sheltering in Afghanistan. There's been this sort of ceasefire recently, but previously an uptick of attacks by the TTP in Pakistan, in the Pakistani tribal areas in particular. You know, After a period of quiet in which the Pakistani military had ousted the TTP from those areas. But there was this sort of uptick in attacks by the Pakistani Taliban and then seemingly benefiting from the sort of the extra operating space they enjoy across the border.
0: You know, one thing we saw at the time that the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan was that pretty explicitly U.S. officials were saying, we now see Afghanistan as a regional threat or the problems within Afghanistan as a regional threat, not an international threat and over to you regional countries to now work on trying to contain and manage that threat it wasn't talking point number 1 but it was it was explicitly in there in what the united states was saying and you know that's a reasonable judgment for washington to have made about the current security realities in the country the the risk of instability that can emanate from Afghanistan is a risk predominantly experienced by the regional countries, including first and foremost Pakistan, but also the Central Asian countries to the north, and also Iran potentially to the west. And that includes threats from militant groups, uh, and it also includes threats from narcotics trafficking. Uh, and uh, from you know the the, the potential to have a, a failed state right there in the middle of that neighborhood is something that all of those countries are concerned about. For Pakistan, uh, I say it's first and foremost uh, going to feel is already feeling these effects because even though the Taliban was a um, beneficiary of Pakistani, largesse and a safe haven over the course of the insurgency, and really it would have been quite hard for the Taliban to, to, to mount and sustain an insurgency without that ability to have safe haven in Pakistan. Um, it's at the same time the case that there's not a lot of love lost between the two. I mean, the, the, the Taliban are Afghans. They are nationalist in a sense. I mean, their orientation is um, it was entirely predictable and predicted <laughs> by myself included that, you know, we wouldn't see a lot of gratitude from the Taliban towards Islamabad uh, as and when the Taliban came back to power in Afghanistan. The uh, Afghan Taliban have declined to take any kind of really, hard-edged action against the Pakistani Taliban. And what they've offered to the Pakistanis instead is to purportedly negotiate some kind of peace arrangement or accommodation between Pakistani state and the Pakistani Taliban. I think, and Crisis Group has written about this as well, that's quite implausible that you're going to see any kind of Um, political or negotiated compromise between the Pakistani Taliban and and the Pakistani state because they just have entirely incompatible objectives.
1: And that's basically, Laurel because the Pakistani Taliban essentially want control of the tribal areas. They want the Pakistani state out of those areas again.
0: Right. And they want changes to the political administrative structures there that push out the Pakistani state and give them more free reign there. And that is understandably unacceptable to the Pakistani state, also unacceptable to many people who live in that part of Pakistan. It was not a good thing for the population when, uh, when that group and others had more free reign. So there's a ceasefire at the moment and, um, and the situation has calmed somewhat, but this story has not ended and is going to continue to be a source of friction between Pakistan and Afghanistan.
1: And how much is the administration's policy toward Pakistan is now shaped by Afghanistan in contrast to, to sort of some years ago?
0: Much less. Because the U.S. doesn't need Pakistan to execute its policies in Afghanistan as the U.S. did in the past. You know, the U.S. was dependent on access to Afghanistan via Pakistan, among other things, and also, um, had, uh, you know, regular engagement with Pakistan trying to get them to, to apply pressures to the Taliban when the Taliban was an insurgency now um uh, the us engages with pakistan trying to get them to help you know moderate uh taliban afghan taliban policies and how it governs the country but you know i wouldn't say this is the kind of major line of effort in american policy that it once was uh so you know in a sense there's an irritant removed from uh from us pakistan relations in that uh pakistan's you know, support for the insurgency when it was an insurgency, that issue is is removed. However, I mean, there are other factors that do impede uh any, you know, sort of healthy development of a relationship between US and Pakistan. One is that there's still a lot of mutual mistrust between the two because of what went on during the last 20 years. Also, you know, there's India. And you know, it's a A very um, important goal for Washington to develop its, further develop its relationship with India. And because India and Pakistan see relations with the U.S. in zero-sum terms, you know, anything positive that the U.S. does toward Pakistan, maybe with the exception of some humanitarian aid, like in the context of the current flood disaster in Pakistan, is seen very negatively by New Delhi.
1: One of the interesting sort of geopolitical developments uh, since the Taliban came to power is the relations between India and the Taliban, especially over the last few months. I don't know whether New Delhi has taken a look at the Taliban's frictions with Pakistan and decided, you know, maybe they're not just a proxy or whether India sees engaging with the Taliban as a way of sort of try to keep a grip on some of the anti-India groups, Jaish Mohammed, Lashkar Taiba, these groups that have also had long relations with the Taliban. But there has been this outreach between India and the Taliban, which given their long animosity is, you know, maybe on some level surprising.
0: Yeah, a bit surprising that it happened so soon after the Taliban takeover. You know, not clear yet how far it will go, but I think pretty savvy on the part of the Indians looking at it from their perspective. They had claimed over the last twenty years, and I think this is there's a certain degree of genuineness in this to have had interests in engagement with the Afghan people and supporting the Afghan people, and so um, you know continuing to be invested somewhat in Afghanistan as a way of kind of making that real. But also, it's definitely an opportunity to tweak the Pakistanis. Uh, and, uh, you know, no opportunity to that is should be left <laughs> on the table.
1: Now, no countries formally recognize the new government, but there are a lot of governments in the region that are now talking to the Taliban, Western governments as well are talking to the Taliban. But the, the sort of degree of engagement from China, Russia, Iran, Central Asia, I mean, many of them kept their diplomats in Kabul even as the Taliban took over. I mean, how, how do you sense that the Taliban's relations with the with the region are, are evolving? And, and I mean, it, might that at some point lead to sort of a collective in the region to sort of diplomatically recognise the, the government?
0: You know, I think we're seeing a rather remarkable, all things considered, um, rapidity of normalisation of relations with the Taliban. On the part of countries in the region as well as countries further afield. We're not seeing any moves toward official recognition yet. I think that's because that is, uh, for any country that would be inclined to officially recognize them, you know, they would want to be part of a, a meaningful critical mass. No one wants to have a situation where only, say, three countries in the world. I mean, in the 1990s, it was only Saudi Arabia, UAE and Pakistan that recognized the Taliban regime. Uh, and so no one really wants to be in that position again of one of just a handful that that recognized the regime. But I think what we're seeing is that official recognition is really not even necessary. Uh, that there's a a sliding scale of normalization that's possible without saying the R word uh, that accommodates everyone's interests and needs. And so why is it that there has been a fairly rapid normalization, even though um, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find a country that's enthusiastic about the nature of Taliban rule in Afghanistan. I mean, first of all, they're not very easy to deal with. I mean, their topmost leaders don't even meet with people in the outside. They don't even show themselves to the Afghan people, much less to the outside world. Like, that's not normal.
1: That's sort of the power center in Kandahar, essentially.
0: Right. The power center among the emir and the the circle around him who are apparently based in Kandahar rather than in the capital, Kabul. Um, They're not the official government, but they are the, the center of power of the organization. Um, you know, there's no uh, government in the world that is happy to see the Taliban not letting girls go to school beyond the age of puberty to be ruling in a um, very unilateral and exclusivist fashion that's probably over the long term a threat to their own durability as a regime. But what I do think you see is, first of all, just a lot of fatigue with the war that went on over the last two years. I mean, there is relief that there is um, not war in Afghanistan, and that I don't think you see really any governments at the moment wanting to uh you know, object to strong oppose Taliban rule in a way that could bring war back to Afghanistan. Um, I think also you see that there's not really any alternative to the Taliban at the moment. There's no group that looks like it's waiting in the wings that is able to um step in and displace the Taliban and make the situation any better than it than it is now. And even those groups that are trying to mount an armed opposition to the Taliban. They were mostly led by people who are now seen as discredited for having failed over the last 20 years to have taken advantage of the enormous amount of military and financial support from the international community and sort of held the the country together. And so
1: regional governments moving towards, if not formal recognition, at least sort of practical engagement as necessary, recognising it's probably the best way, to the extent possible, that they can protect their interests in Afghanistan, including those related to counterterrorism. If we come then back to the US, so about this time last year, just as... American troops were pulling out and the Taliban was taking over. President Biden said, and I'm paraphrasing, the U.S.'s only vital national interest was preventing a terrorist attack on the American homeland. How much is that sort of still the overriding concern in Washington? Or is there a broader set of goals, you know, even if those aren't clearly articulated?
0: I think we see de facto the recognition on the part of the U.S. of three interests in Afghanistan. One is certainly counterterrorism, that there are still groups present that the U.S. at least wants to keep an eye on. And I think what we saw in the withdrawal was a judgment that the counterterrorism interest in Afghanistan had diminished enough that it was safe for the U.S. to pull out militarily. The second interest is in not completely turning... Washington's back on the Afghan people. After 20 years of investment in the country, there is a moral and reputational interest in not completely turning their back on, in particular, Afghan women and girls, because a real constituency developed in the U.S. and in the West more broadly for support for Afghan women and girls and their advancement. And I think we have seen the U.S. be Quite generous in terms of humanitarian support for Afghanistan. There's been a tremendous humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan over the course of the last year for multiple reasons, but to include because of the U.S. withdrawal and and the the, the implications of that for the economy and and for in you know, just the withdrawal of an enormous amount of pipeline of support that had been there before, but other reasons as well. And over the last year, the US has given over a billion dollars in humanitarian aid to Afghanistan, which is quite a considerable sum. Uh, and I think that's a reflection of the fact that the US doesn't want to be seen as having turned its back on the Afghan people. And the third interest is, you know, the US I think would prefer not to see instability in the region more broadly. Um, instability that spills out of Afghanistan into Pakistan, an already somewhat unsteady um, country of over 200 million people that has nuclear arms. Like you don't want to see a lot of instability spilling over into Pakistan, into Central Asia, where the US has tried to develop its relationships, and potentially even into India, though that's a, a little bit further afield.
1: And if we take those three goals, so counterterrorism, not turning its back on the Afghan people, although, you know, as we'll talk about in a moment, there's some questions, I think, about what humanitarian aid can do as opposed to sort of getting some money into the country, kickstarting the economy. And the third one, as you say, sort of not wanting the country again to descend into chaos that could destabilise other parts of the region. So if those are the goals. You've talked in the past about US options for sort of achieving those goals, for pursuing its interests in Afghanistan. And broadly speaking, those options what uh, first engagement, sort of something like what the region's doing with the government, even if it's full short of diplomatic recognition. That's one option. Second, option would be sort of isolation, which is basically keeping the sanctions in place, not releasing the frozen assets that that Washington has kept from Afghanistan, not giving any non-humanitarian aid. That would be second isolation. And the third one would be sort of actively opposing the Taliban, in essence, giving money or weapons to the groups that are trying to oust the Taliban. So basically the National Resistance Front, this insurgent group comprising parts of the former government. And maybe some of the associated groups, none of which for now seem to pose a serious threat to the Taliban, as you suggested earlier. So you got those three options, engagement, isolation and opposition. How would you describe where US policy is at the moment?
0: It is, you know, on the sliding scale from uh, intensive engagement to outright opposition, the U.S. is somewhere between engagement and isolation. And I think how you characterize it, whether it's engagement with some isolation or isolation with some engagement is, you know, maybe depending on whether you see glasses as half full or half empty. The way I would, I think from an American um, policymaker perspective, they would put the emphasis... Maybe not publicly, but in what they're trying to do on engagement in the sense that, you know, after a 20-year war that they just lost against this group, the fact that they're talking at all and still giving some support to the country is quite notable. I mean, you didn't see anything like that after Vietnam. So that's one way to look at it. But I think it also has to be said that the overall policy frame is one of isolation in which the engagement is then selective. Because if you look at the main architecture of the U.S. policy towards Afghanistan now, some of its prominent features are sanctions that pre-existed, the Taliban takeover, but sanctions that remain, freezing of Afghan state assets, in particular, the central bank, $7 billion of central bank assets, obviously non-recognition. Um, and a refusal to provide any support to Afghanistan that touches the Taliban in any way. So humanitarian support delivered by humanitarian NGOs and UN bodies, okay. Any support for the Afghan economy or livelihoods or other kinds of economic development that would have to implicate engagement with institutions of Afghanistan that are now headed by the Taliban, not okay. So that's an essentially isolationist policy frame. Within that policy frame, the US has carved out exceptions and caveats. So for the sanctions regime, there were exceptions carved out that would allow the US as a government institutions to invest in Afghanistan, but would allow private trade, would allow humanitarian organizations to operate freely. um, And a variety of other um you know, exceptions carved out that are meaningful but within a policy frame of sanctions. So that's just one example. Another example is on the central bank reserves. The US has been trying to work out a mechanism for at least half of those reserves to be utilized in a way that can support macroeconomic stability in Afghanistan, even if they're not actually returned to the central bank. It's been very difficult to design this mechanism, but it, you know, the, the effort that the U.S. has put into trying to come up with some mechanism is an example of engagement within this frame of isolation, meaning, you know, freezing of, of the assets. And the U.S. does have diplomatic engagement with the Taliban. It's pretty sporadic because the U.S. is not present in Kabul. Um, and it's not high level. Um, there was a, a kind of, you know, a bit of a downgrading of the Afghan envoy position, um, when the, uh, when the previous envoy, um, Zalmay Khalizad left. Um, but the person who is the envoy now still, you know, is active in engaging with actors in the region and sporadically with the Taliban as well, trying to, um, pursue those interests that I already outlined.
1: And there have been talks between US diplomats and the Taliban for some time. I mean, I think they petered out a bit around the time the Taliban announced they weren't going to reopen girls school back in March, but then seemed to sort of start up again. I'm not sure whether Zawahiri's killing has affected them. But there were these talks ongoing about getting the Afghan Central Bank up and running again, basically so that money could go in to the Afghan Central Bank from aid agencies, for example, uh, from others in a way that the US in particular, other Western donors were comfortable with, that it wasn't going to be misused by the Taliban. Where are those talks? I mean, how do you rate prospects for them? I mean, because there is this this dilemma, right? I mean, on the one hand, the US doesn't want to turn its back on Afghans, but it also is determined not to do anything that might be perceived as sort of propping up the Taliban. In reality, though, there's sort of a limit to the workarounds that you're describing. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're not prepared to put in non-humanitarian aid, not prepared to release the frozen assets to get the central bank moving again. You know, it's hard to see how those policies don't contribute to the suffering of ordinary Afghans.
0: You know, the conundrum for the United States and other uh, Western donors who had been the main uh, supporters financially of Afghanistan over the last 20 years is that um, if you don't want to turn your back on the Afghan people, as we talked about, humanitarian aid is never going to be enough, I mean, the need is very great in Afghanistan. The economy has just dropped into a sinkhole. And humanitarian aid is essentially a bandage. It's not a fix for an economy that has, you know, suffered that um, huge blow that the Afghan economy has. Moreover, it's hard to sustain the level of humanitarian support that there currently is for Afghanistan because the needs are just very great all around the world, legitimate needs in a way i mean is that really what the afghan people need i mean i don't think they're they're looking for handouts forever as opposed to a way to restore livelihoods and and restore some decent level of economic activity so that's a that's a real problem for governments that don't want to engage with afghan institutions in a way that would be supportive of economic revival and the central bank is just a, a kind of outsized um, element of this because of the freezing of those central bank funds. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but it's a bit more than just the freezing of the funds. It's also the way in which the, the sort of disabling of the Afghan central bank has made it impossible for Afghanistan to be connected to the international financial system in a way that allows trade to to flow freely. So it's a it's a complicated set of issues. I'd certainly give the U.S. credit for putting a lot of effort into trying to deal with this problem of restoring some central bank-like functionality, um, while, you know, not returning those funds to the U.S., but it's still an open and progress has been made. This, this thing, this entity called the Afghan Fund has been established in, um, in Switzerland, um, that is supposed to, uh, preserve and protect these funds, at least half of them, half of the $7 billion has been cordoned off by the Biden administration uh, for possible settlement of some legal claims against the Taliban. It's quite possible that those legal claims will fail and that that $3.5 billion will be added to the $3.5 billion that's now protected and preserved in Switzerland. But that could take some time to materialize. And, you know, there's at least some uncertainty about that.
1: And so just to be clear, I mean, we're talking about money that was given as aid and then taken back or, you know, a lot of this is just sort of ordinary Afghans savings that was in the in the central bank.
0: It's a mix of things. Some of it was, was ordinary savings and, and deposits by private entities in Afghanistan. The majority of it was what you would call state assets and was used for a variety of normal central banking purposes. It was being held in the United States and the US Federal Reserve in a way that the Federal Reserve does for other governments too, to sort of manage the funds and provide shipments of US dollars um, for auction in order to manage monetary policy in Afghanistan. There have been some people who have thrown around the idea that like, well, this was really all our money and aid money anyway. I mean, that's that's only an argument in the sense that all money is fungible, but it is not literally the case that the U.S. or any other government gave billions of dollars to the central bank of Afghanistan for purposes of having central bank reserves. That's not accurate. There's a certain amount of, you know, irony, even perversity, I would say, in the U.S. position that, um, we can't let this money be returned to the Taliban because we don't trust them, that somehow the Taliban would siphon that off for... Terrorism related, um, purposes. The, the perversity in this is that if you don't have a normally functioning or semi-normally functioning financial system, you have zero oversight of how money is flowing in and out of the country. And it's all informal. It's through these use of Hawala systems. It's sort of, it's, you, you just push it all under the radar. So a better arrangement would be if you can put something in place that normalizes the central banking and also, create some transparency and, and oversight. I guess, it was, you know, final point what I, I would just make here is there is a political dimension to this, too. Like, for the U.S. administration to be taking any steps that look like or can be characterized as sending billions of dollars to the Taliban is not a good look. And that is something that I think the U.S. will politically seek to avoid.
1: And Laurel, what do you make of the get tough on the Taliban type argument that the U.S., that other Western powers should somehow be tougher than if you want the Taliban to sort of bow to foreign pressure, particularly on the issue of girls' education, uh, women's rights, but more broadly, too, on the way they're governing. You've got to up the pressure on them. I mean, exactly what that entails isn't always clear, but, but broadly speaking, I mean, what do you make of that argument?
0: I can dispense with that in one sentence. Tell me what is tougher than 140,000 of the world's most capable troops in a country <laughs> looking for you and killing you. I mean, that's what at the peak the U.S. did in Afghanistan over the last 20 years and billions and billions of dollars to prop up and support uh, your adversary, you, the Taliban. Like That pressure did not dispense with the Taliban. So the idea that a travel ban or um, economic sanctions, all of which are actually already still in place against the Taliban. So I'm not quite sure how much tougher they could actually be. Um, the idea that that is going to bend the Taliban to American will is utterly fanciful. I cannot conceive of and I have not seen anyone articulate in any um, persuasive way a kind of package of pressure against the Taliban that is going to moderate their policies that is going to influence how they govern within Afghanistan in any really material way. That's not to say that the US and other governments around the world should not continue the campaign of uh, of pressing on the Taliban, their views about girls' education and about how the Taliban is governing domestically. And, you know, it is to say also that because of how the government is, because of how the Taliban is governing Afghanistan, they're not going to get any direct financial support from governments who find their uh, the ways that they're governing anathema to um, the donor's own values. Um, so there are costs for the Taliban and in, in how they are. Proceeding to govern the country. And I think that that's going to continue. And, and some of that, I think, is justifiable. But it's not going to change how they're governing. They're not, in, they're not making these decisions driven by what does the outside world think of what we're doing. They're making these decisions based on their own internal dynamics and preferences. The idea that there's some other form of pressure that has not already been applied against the Taliban that's somehow going to make some new difference, I mean, it, it's fantasy. It's the kind of fantasy that also induced the U.S. of the last 20 years to think if we just want something badly enough, we can make it happen. And if we're not making it happen, clearly the people in charge just don't want it badly enough. It's actually the way that Afghans often thought about U.S. policy towards Pakistan over the last 20 years. Like, well, surely, you know, you Americans, if you really wanted Pakistan to crack down on the Taliban, you could make it happen. And if it's not happening, it's because you don't actually want it to happen. I mean, the exaggeration of American or Western agency in the trajectory of events in Afghanistan is something that has been perpetuated by all sides.
1: So, Laurel, we're just over a year now since the U.S. pullout, since the Taliban takeover. And sort of around the anniversary, there was this flurry of pieces in the U.S., often written by former military officials, some of whom played quite prominent roles in the war. But reflecting a, a broader view, I mean, some go as far as to say that the U.S. could have won the war, that the problem was the sort of lack of commitment or things that were done wrong, although maybe that's a a rarer argument, but many argue that the U.S. could have just sort of stayed the course, that the costs were manageable, that propping up the government, having a a footprint there to to tackle transnational militant groups wouldn't have taken more than 2,000, 3,000 U.S. troops. What do you make of that line of thinking?
0: Yeah, I mean, even for those who were supportive of the U.S. staying in Afghanistan, I think by the end you really didn't even see an argument about winning the war. I mean, the idea that there was a, a an outright military victory to be achieved faded by the end. But there was definitely an argument there, and there still is on the part of some. Is and and you've explained it well of staying the course. You know that if we just keep. Uh, you know, this is U.S. perspective. You just keep, you know, two and a half, three thousand men and women in the country and keep, um, the financial spigot turned on that you could, um, continue to, uh, do your counterterrorism thing in the country and keep the government afloat. The problem with that is those making that argument that the cost was tolerable never, I have never seen someone making that argument who factors in or even states the cost to Afghans of that kind of stay in the course. It's always put in, you know, American dollar terms, American lives terms. Never is it mentioned in those arguments that, for instance, in 2021, 35,000 Afghans lost their lives, uh, that the war was... Um, was still the most deadly war in the world.
1: The U.S. couldn't have stayed without perpetuating the war, right?
0: So I think it's unquestionable that staying the course in Afghanistan would have meant perpetuating the war in Afghanistan, perpetuating the violence in Afghanistan. That's what staying the course means.
1: In essence, the U.S. couldn't have just stayed and done counterterrorism, right? I mean, it had to stay to prop up a government that the Taliban with safe havens in Pakistan were opposing. So these phenomenal levels of violence you know, at, at the time, as you say, the worst, worst, deadliest conflict in the world for several years, this would have continued had the U.S. stayed, irrespective of how it tried to define its mandate.
0: Exactly. And, it, you know, the there was really no such thing, um, as some have suggested, as an option for the U.S. where it stayed in Afghanistan and only did counterterrorism. Because once you're staying there, you are, as was the case during 20 years, you are entangling your counterterrorism mission with a counterinsurgency mission against the Taliban. Because for the government of Afghanistan, the main threat was the Taliban, not terrorist groups. And there's no scenario in which the US military could have just remained in Afghanistan in some little counterterrorism bubble free floating in Afghanistan without being entangled in the Afghan governments counterinsurgency fight against the Taliban. So that's why, first of all, as we said, that's why you're perpetuating that war in Afghanistan if you stay there. And it's also why for the U.S., as the price of staying to do its counterterrorism thing, it would have been required for the U.S. to continue to prop up the Afghan government, support the Afghan security forces. And on top of that, it was a situation where for a number of years, The, the capabilities and the, the sort of domestic legitimacy, the domestic support in Afghanistan for that Afghan government was eroding. Um, so this wasn't a situation where you had a healthy, thriving government and security forces that was nonetheless battling an insurgency, but had, you know, some, real, um, uh, you know, integrity to it that was going to, to hold. And this this point is proven by what happened in the aftermath of the U.S. withdrawal. What we saw above all else was the hollowness and the brittleness of the Afghan government and Afghan institutions, which uh, which crumbled faster than even the Taliban predicted.
1: And Laurel, maybe just one more to end on. The U.S. forces, they were propping up the government, as you say, but they were also propping up a way of life for many Afghans, some of whom supported the Ghani government and some of them didn't. And, you know, especially, I don't want to generalise, but especially Afghans living in cities and towns. And obviously a big part of that relates to women's and girls' rights. But it runs even broader than that, right? A generation of Afghans, many of whom I'm sure you know, had grown up or spent their formative years since the U.S. toppled the Taliban in 2001. Now, at some point, there was always going to be a reckoning between those visions of Afghanistan, right? I mean, the sort of more liberal, more outward facing Afghanistan, which many Afghans support and the Taliban and what they represent. And I sort of wonder, I mean, looking back, that reckoning when it came has been pretty brutal. I sort of wonder, reflecting back, if there were opportunities earlier to create space for that to happen in a different way.
0: Maybe. Maybe if there had been more attention much earlier on, more commitment politically to the idea of trying to end the war rather than win the war, end it through some kind of political accommodation. At the end, and you know, the deal that the U.S. negotiated with the Taliban in 2020 um, was a deal that was primarily about easing the U.S. exit from Afghanistan. It, its prospects of actually producing... Um, a political accommodation among Afghans was, I wouldn't say it was zero, and it was worth trying to convert that into an opportunity, but it was exceedingly unlikely to happen at that stage, given what was going on with, you know, the U.S. pullout, making it evident that it wanted to pull out and and the the weakening of the Afghan government and the strengthening of the Taliban over a number of years. So, you know, theoretically, at least, it, there could have been a way earlier on, um, to reach political accommodations that would have created that kind of reckoning between these different um, strands in Afghan society that that you've pointed out, further to say, I think it's terrible for for many Afghans what's happened in Afghanistan over the last year that I mean I think it's positive for many Afghans that you don't have. The death and destruction that you had during the war, you know, there are people alive today who would not be alive today in Afghanistan if the war had still been going on. And that is a, a crucial value to hold to. Um, nevertheless, the way the Taliban is governing the the limitations on on women's role in society, on women's education. um and other freedoms and the consequences in terms of the economy and just, you know, some of just the basic incompetence of how the Taliban is governing. These are all highly negative developments for many Afghans. At the same time, you know, it's notable that even those who, uh, among Americans and other Westerners who, uh, think that the U.S. and NATO should have stayed the course in Afghanistan militarily, although they might observe these negative developments and, you know, use that as a supporting argument. I don't think really anyone says the U.S. should have stayed in Afghanistan in order to protect the lifestyles of predominantly urban Afghans, or even that the U.S. should have stayed in Afghanistan to protect the lives and opportunities of American women. It's a kind of additive argument and in the way it was an additive argument over the last 20 years for staying in Afghanistan. But no, you know, no American writing about this puts that at the forefront of why the US should have kept the American military there and kept the 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 war going on because as deplorable as it may be, things that are happening in Afghanistan, that's just not the business the United States is in around the world, invading countries and in using military power in order to achieve certain social ends. Um, the United States did not invade Afghanistan in the first place in 2001 in order to free the women of Afghanistan. And it was never going to stay in Afghanistan for the purpose of keeping the Afghan women free, as much as many of us would have preferred to see that for, for many Afghan women. That's... That's just the reality of the situation.
1: Laurel, thanks so much for coming on again.
0: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Alex Vigorsky, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, of course, to all of you, to our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly at wood at crisisgroup.org if you have any suggestions. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Tell your friends and colleagues about us. We did have some feedback recently, which I very much appreciate, about the length of the episodes that it was creeping up. People felt that maybe we, or I in particular, should be a little bit more disciplined and so just to say that we're very much taking that on board i failed in the first hurdle this week because laurel was so interesting that we decided to leave it a little bit longer than usual but in the weeks ahead we'll definitely make an effort to keep the length a little bit more manageable so i hope very much you'll join us again next week and for more episodes